and welcome back to another episode of the Tepi Podcast, a series where you can hear from the diverse voices of people working and learning towards peace in Northeast Asia. In the last episode, we got to hear from Paul Lee, who shared a bit about his work at the United States Institute of Peace, his experience podcasting, and a bit about his perspective on peace. In this episode, you'll be hearing from Mary Popio. Mary is the co-founder of Peace Culture Village, or PCV, which is a Hiroshima-based youth-led nonprofit dedicated to promoting a sustainable global peace culture through social entrepreneurship, peace education, and youth empowerment. Mary also recently took on a position in government relations consulting at GR Japan. Through our conversation, we talk about how Mary ended up in Japan, her story of helping build PCV, and her recent transition to government relations consulting. We also touch on Mary's experience as an American in Hiroshima, the nexus of digital technology and peacebuilding, and prospects of peacebuilding as a career. I hope you enjoy what this conversation has to offer. So without further delay, here is Mary. Thanks for coming on the podcast. It's really great to get to talk with you. Uh, for those who don't know you, could you briefly just give a little introduction about yourself and the work that you're involved with? Of course. Um, first of all, Austin, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this podcast. I'm an avid listener, so I'm very excited to be on. Um, and for everybody listening, uh, my name is Mary Popio, and I'm originally from Boston in the United States. Um, I come to today's conversation from a background in nonprofit management, youth empowerment, uh, peace education, and community building. And I am co-founder of PCV, or Peace Culture Village, which is a Hiroshima-based peace education nonprofit and social business. And I'm also an associate at GR Japan, uh, which is part of the largest government relations and public policy consulting firms here in East Asia. And I'm very excited to be here today. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot there we can dig into, uh, and I'm sure we'll have time to to talk about a lot of it. But before that, I want to kind of go back to kind of how you first got started on on a lot of the work that you're involved with. I read that you started with some trips to Hiroshima and Nagasaki while you were studying in college, mm-hmm. kind of doing a little bit of research about nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. I was wondering if you could share a bit about how you got interested in those opportunities to begin with and kind of how those early trips were formational for you? Sure. So I I guess it's a little bit embarrassing, but to be perfectly honest, the reason I originally <laughs> was interested in, in visiting Japan um, and going abroad, I was um, an RA at Boston College School. And so I actually couldn't study abroad. And so um, in, instead, I decided to apply for some study grants that Boston College offered so that I could finally get uh, an opportunity to go abroad. And then the question kind of became, okay, what do I research? I guess the original impetus for the research was actually going abroad. But as a student at Boston College, which is a Jesuit university, I was very interested as a Catholic in Catholic history. And there's a really interesting and tragic history of Christian persecution in Japan. And I had learned about that in class. 
So originally kind of that desire to go abroad and my interest in Christian history yeah. are what prompted me uh, to apply and then receive the research grant. And so when I was a sophomore in university, I ended up going to Nagasaki in Japan for about a month to study that Catholic history. Yeah. And I had never learned deeply about the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki up until that point. Uh, so what I learned there shocked me quite a bit. So going to the museum in Nagasaki and seeing there are these rosaries there that have been scorched and irradiated by the atomic mm. bomb. And I think that was really personal for me to see all of these items that I have in my own home and that I use as a practicing Catholic very often that had been just destroyed by the bombing and thinking about the families and about how the atomic bomb had been blessed by a Catholic oh, priest. Wow, yeah. It was extremely conflicting. And I think that might have been the first time for me in my life where I seriously considered my role and responsibility as a global citizen and felt very much angst filled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was my first my first visit to Japan. And I think since that summer, I really haven't been able to get this theme of, of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the bombings. Um, they've been very much present in my life. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds kind of like you, in, in some sense, stumbled into this almost by coincidence or by accident. And mm -hmm. then it was such a, like you said, shocking and such an eye-opening experience that you kind of got pulled into it. Um, yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah. So I'm wondering kind of from there, you have these um, experiences as a college student. And uh, I heard that you'd gone back several times um, each summer. Mm -hmm as you're able and then I'm assuming it was after you graduated then you were able to go to Hiroshima and help co-found PCV is that right yeah that's correct but like you said I had been back to Japan almost every summer from that point on other research grants from my university and then other grant opportunities um, and when I graduated from university I had been uh, volunteering and continued to volunteer for about two years as a peace activist with many different groups like um, the AFSC, the American Friends Service Committee, and also Global Zero. And at the same time, I was juggling full-time jobs mm. around Boston, but I really wished uh, after graduating that I could turn my peace activism into a full-time job. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, around that time, I reached out to my mentor, Stephen Leeper. Mm -hmm. He's former chairman of the Peace Culture Foundation, which manages the Peace Memorial Museum in Hiroshima. And I'd gotten to know him over my years of going back and forth between um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the US. And I explained to him what I was thinking. And it coincidentally happened that he was planning to found a nonprofit in Hiroshima. And he invited me over to help him with that. And so, I was, you know, 24 and uh, I didn't have a visa and I didn't have a salary, yeah. but I moved to Hiroshima uh, about six years ago to see if we could get something going. Yeah. So that's kind of the beginning of all of it. Wow, that's such a, a big leap. But yeah, that's the, the passion and the direction that you're kind of hoping to go. You got to just jump in, I guess. Yeah. And I don't 
I, I don't know if I thought at that point that I would be here for so long, but yeah, I think I was very, very excited about the opportunity. A couple of the other guests on this podcast are also living in different countries and then they were born in or grew up in or, and they also, yeah, it seems like a similar theme. A lot of people who enter into this type of work kind of think, oh, maybe it'll be a year or two or a couple of <laughs> years and then it tends to expand and yes. uh, it's a common theme I've encountered. So. so you mentioned kind of going during those summer trips uh, was kind of really eye-opening and shocking for you. Um, and I'm sure that kind of through your uh, helping co-found PCV, there was a lot of experiences there as well. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the experience of being an American specifically who was living in Hiroshima um, and kind of your encounters with the bomb survivors and with um, yeah, trying to work in that context, specifically as an American in a city where the United States dropped a, an atomic bomb? Oh, that's a good question. There's so much that I could talk about. I think me and so many people who are involved, especially in the disarmament space, are where we are thanks to the atomic bomb survivors. And I remember when I first visited Hiroshima, mm -hmm. uh, I think that was the first time that I met and really developed relationships with atomic bomb survivors and their descendants. And I think I was expecting some sort of hostility as an American being there, not only from survivors, but just from people in general. I did mm -hmm. not experience any of that. People were mm. so welcoming. Um, yeah. And I think what, what was really transformative for me was experiencing the beautiful city that once had been a barren wasteland. And then talking to these atomic bomb survivors, they're called hibaksha in Japanese, talking to the hibaksha who were op openly welcoming me, an American, from the nation who had done this to them. I think I saw with my own eyes that it was possible for humans to overcome seemingly insurmountable tragedy. And it was possible to do it with love and forgiveness. So after the bomb, the survivors picked up the pieces of their city and very consciously chose to break the cycle of violence and to mm -hmm. rebuild their city in an image of peace and forgiveness and reconciliation. And to me, I think hearing that from survivors, I was really confused. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought, how is it that they are able to react this way. And then since getting to know them better, I now understand that it's actually quite complicated. It was not easy for them to do. And many of them, even though they might give tours to Americans in, in Peace Park and to soldiers and do this really amazing reconciliatory work, they still have that pain and that trauma and they choose to set it aside in order to work toward peace because one of them, uh, a survivor I'm very close to, Ito-san, he always tells me that if you don't cultivate peace within yourself, it won't be possible for you to create peace externally for the people that you care about. And so I think this knowledge that people, people in the world say peace is not possible. Humans can't create peace. But the survivors, I think they've done it. I think they're proof that peace is possible. And that knowledge that peace is possible, I believe is one of the most important things for our world. And that getting to know these people 
who have done a really, really difficult thing. Mm -hmm. it, it inspires me a lot and has really inspired me to dedicate my life to this work. So I could go on and on the survivor, you know, every survivor is unique. Everyone mm -hmm. has kind of a message they want to, to stress and to promote, but um, they've completely changed my life. And yeah. one more thing I'll say in this topic is I received a mission from Itosan, actually, the survivor I mentioned before, to spread the stories of, of or his story and the stories of the survivors to English-speaking people and nations. And during COVID, that became a lot more difficult because mm -hmm. there were not as many or almost no people from outside of Japan coming into the country. And so for the past two or three years, I've been doing a lot of speaking to Japanese groups, actually. And for a long time, I felt extremely uncomfortable and, and worried about this because I am an American, right? I'm mm -hmm. from the aggressor mm -hmm. nation. I, take, I, I thought that I may be taking the voice away from the voices of, of the survivors or descendants or people living in Hiroshima. And the, I work with many third and fourth atomic bomb survivor or say, descendants mm -hmm. and with the survivors. And they all told me that if only Japanese people and only people from Hiroshima are doing this work, mm -hmm. nothing will change. And that it, it can't only be Americans. It needs mm -hmm. to be people from around the world. And so they've really encouraged me to work through that within myself. And I think that's something, a conflict that I still deal, deal with. Yeah, yeah. But I also now see the value of having a team of, of atomic bomb survivors and their descendants working together with Americans. It's almost a miracle in order to spread their message and their legacy. So it is kind of a complicated identity. Yeah, yeah. I think your, the message that your mentor gave you of if you don't culture, cultivate peace in yourself, you can't give peace to others or create peace in the world. I think that's such a powerful message. And especially like you were kind of saying how they had to actively choose mm. to rebuild their city as a city of peace. And like I've heard other people talk before of how like in some sense violence is like a narrowing of choice. Mm. And like it sounds like this action that they're doing to actively choose itself is part of the piece of kind of rejecting the the violence of mm -hmm. of not having choices and saying we will choose we will choose peace and to make our city peace and to spread this message in ourselves among ourselves and around the world and kind of inviting other people like yourself or like others to make that choice as well mm -hmm. that's yeah that's a beautiful message yeah yeah and so I know you were there for six years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like during that six years, and um, you mentioned how you've kind of gone on to another position now, but how do you think you would compare like, what you thought of peace or what you thought peace is before getting to uh, work in Hiroshima and then kind of after having the six years of experience how did that kind of transform your vision of peace mm, yeah that's a great question so pcv stands for peace culture village my mentor steve used to work at the peace culture foundation this 
term peace culture was actually born uh, in Hiroshima and was coined by an atomic bomb survivor named Ichiro Moritaki. He talked about peace culture and war culture. Mm -hmm. um, and a peace culture, you know, when we talk about peace, I think especially at PCV, and maybe I'll talk a little bit about kind of what exactly we do in a minute, but we work a lot with youth. And peace is kind of a difficult topic to talk about and conceptualize. It's so big. Um, so when we say, how do we create world peace? I think it's very amorphous and difficult to tackle for a lot of youth. But sure. when we talk about peace culture, all of us live in and shape culture, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, and I like to think to myself that every day I might act in a way that perpetuates and creates peace culture in the world or war culture in the world. Uh, peace culture, according to Moritaki-san, being a society that's very collaborative, that strives for the well-being of all people, that is non-violent, and war culture being a very competitive society, not, not so much friendly competition like we sometimes see in sports, but more competition at the expense of the well-being of a certain group of people and then tends to be violent. So I believe we all, and, and Moritaki-san believe that perhaps we all have both of these inside of us. Um, and so all of our choices are important. Uh, when we talk about world peace, maybe a lot of young people think, what can I do? This is such a big thing, maybe for politicians or world leaders to care about. But I think the concept of peace culture really empowers us to focus on the change we can create and the impact we have in our own lives. So since moving to Hiroshima and learning about this concept of peace culture, I think that my views of what peace is has changed a lot. My view of the impact I can make has changed a lot. I also think this does, is not so much the definition of peace, but more how to create peace. <laughs> when I was an activist in Hiroshima, um, I was trying really hard to convince people that nuclear weapons should be eliminated. But what I found is that I was much more often convinced <laughs> than convincing. Mm. So people would posit various ideas and then I would say, oh, those are interesting ideas and get very sidetracked. So I think one thing I, another thing I've learned is act, the role of an activist is extremely important. And there's also another role that's very important for peace building, which I think is um, not trying to convince someone but instead listening and learning and dialoguing and what I would call peace education, helping people to think for themselves about what peace is to them, what their values are, mm -hmm. what kind of leader they want to be, how they want to impact the world. So I've also, I think, had a mindset in terms of how I want to build peace and how I'm maybe more naturally gifted in building peace there have been quite a lot of learnings, I think, since moving to Hiroshima. Yeah, it sounds like you've kind of, I guess, in some sense, learned how to learn about mm -hmm. peace. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that sounds very cool. Um, so you mentioned, or maybe we could go back and touch briefly on what exactly PCV does, like mm -hmm. what type of projects or what kind of stuff they're doing. So PCV has had a lot of identities. When we first founded it, we tried quite quite a lot of things. We um, tried being an eco-village, focusing on activism, on English teaching. And what we found is that 
nonprofit and social sector in Japan is quite weak compared to the US, for example. And it's not easy to survive um, solely based off donations. So about two years ago, we made the switch to a social business model and we brought in new staff and we finally kind of found where we're going to live. Um, and so today, PCV is a youth-led nonprofit dedicated to promoting peace culture through social entrepreneurship, peace education, and youth empowerment. Uh, I think what makes us stand out in Hiroshima, but also around the world, is that we're a team of Americans and third and fourth generation atomic bomb survivors that are our mm -hmm. staff. Unlike a lot of organizations, we are completely run by youth, people in our 30s and under. And again, the atomic bomb survivors inspired us to dedicate our careers to peacework. But as you might know, they aren't going to be with us mm. for much longer. The average age of the survivors is now 84 years old. And um, in three years, a newspaper in Hiroshima reported recently, um, only 37% of atomic bomb survivor groups will have to cease their operations. And the reason is because of a lack of successors and a lack of funds. And so PCV, with our mission, we aim to tackle those two issues, the issue of succession and the issue of funds. So we use immersive technology and youth-to-youth -youth mentorship programs steeped in the lessons of Hiroshima and the Hibakusha to empower youth to enter the peace and disarmament space. And importantly, we also enhance their prospects for sustainable involvement by offering them paid work in the peace field, which is quite new in Hiroshima because this has been, peace work has been done volunteer since the, the bomb was dropped and Hiroshima was rebuilt. Um, but last year, our team of 60 paid youth leaders ran programs for over 10,000 people from 45 different countries. Um, our online programs became JTB, the top uh, travel agency in Japan's number one online program. Our work has been featured uh, on the government of Japan's social media channels. It's been really amazing to see actually how much of a need and a demand there is for, um, for our programs. And so over the past two years, we've been really inspired to work with youth to empower them to really envision and act on the future they want to create. Um, and one other area that we are kind of making a name for ourselves in is in the technology space. We have created VR tours of Hiroshima Peace Park walking tours. We've created an AR app called Explore Hiroshima. That's an X and then four. <laughs> if you want to look it up, you can download it for free on the Google and uh, Apple app stores. That will allow you to interact with atomic bomb survivor holograms uh, and have a tour of Peace Park in uh, augmented reality. But yeah, I say that our work revolves around young people learning and with and teaching other young people uh, about what happened in Hiroshima and about themselves, how they want to now, uh, having learned what they've learned, make a difference in the world in a way that's sustainable and fun for them. And have you found, I mean, it sounds like there's been a lot of growth for PCV in the past few years. Have you found that there's kind of a deep thirst among young people or does it take a little bit more convincing or a little bit more kind of trying to recruit or pull in people to get them interested? Yeah. So our team, as I said before, we have a team of about 60 youth, Hiroshima youth who are running all of our programs. Um, and we actually find there is quite a desire because in Hiroshima, 
there's actually a mandatory peace education curriculum that all of these students have learned. It's something I think is quite amazing about Hiroshima is that uh, they're a peace culture city, not only in name, but also systemically, right? So they learn about what happened in Hiroshima in, in their formal education. Uh, they listen to the survivors and they learn about peace. And so, so many students in Hiroshima want to act on what they've learned. And it's become sort of a big frustration for them, I think, that it's a lot of input and not so much output. So at Peace Culture Village at PCV, we provide a space for them to become mentors to students who are just a little bit younger than them, who are currently undergoing these sort of peace education curriculum, or who are even from other places in Japan or around the globe. Um, so they become kind of representatives of Hiroshima, the next generation. They're able to talk to these young people about why they decided to get involved in piecework, what their difficulties were um, when trying to think about how they wanted to create peace in the world and where they're currently at, and then encouraging um, their counterparts to you know, learn about themselves and, and what they want to do and what their dreams and, and goals are. So yeah, I think there's a really big desire from these Hiroshima youth. And then we also find that there is a desire from educators and from um, businesses. And especially um, we do programs for a lot of people in the Japanese education system. There, there's, I think, also a big need for education uh, surrounding global citizenship, the SDGs, uh, peace, and social issues. And so all of that we tackle in our programming, which we customize for each client, each school or, or business um, to, from the lessons of Hiroshima, talk about that. You mentioned the word business a few times. And I, I think sometimes peace activists or people in peace education, I've seen like a little bit of resistance <laughs> to like business mm. kind of language or words, but it seems like for PCV, it's really naturally integrated and and working really well together. I wonder, has there been any tension between, yeah, between this kind of business mm -hmm. mindset and this peace education mindset? Yeah, that's such an excellent question because I think especially in Hiroshima, there is a big resistance to this. As I said before, the survivors and long, like activists who have been doing this for a long time, I think there's a, a culture of doing piecework volunteer. Um, and some of my colleagues who, again, are third and fourth generation atomic bomb survivors were very nervous about taking PCV in this direction. And we get comments like, well, maybe you're just doing this for the money or mm. you're not even real peace activists, you're young people, right? Um, how could you have the gall to do this professionally? But there are also a lot of people in Hiroshima who just support what we're doing. I think the reason is because there are many young people who graduate from university like I did and want, and maybe a lot of people listening to this podcast have had this experience or are having this experience. You want to dedicate all of your time and energy to something that's going to make a positive impact in the world, but there's no jobs in it. Mm -hmm. And so the reason that we think combining the epic social mission of the social sector with the financial sustainability that comes with business a lot of social, I would call us a social business and a nonprofit is not so we can get rich, but it's so that we can survive 
yeah. and eat and um, make a living while we're doing this important work. And if industries that perpetuate war culture are, are I don't know, drawing the biggest and best talent because they can actually afford a living wage, yeah. And how are we going to create a strong movement and attract the best and brightest minds to, to peace work? So I think, you know, two years ago, PCV made a very intentional decision to, and, and we actually brought in people from the business sector with no nonprofit experience uh, because we believe this is really important. Um, and we believe there may be a, a lack of business acumen in the nonprofit sector and believe that would be very helpful to, to helping us make our movements more sustainable. Wow, yeah, it seems like you guys are having a lot of success with that kind of merging and mm -hmm. yeah, that's really inspirational to hear. And I think that I'm sure a lot of young people listening to this podcast also maybe kind of feel inspired by that, um, but maybe don't quite have a sense of like, well, I wanna join, but I don't like, how do I jump into that as well? Right. Um, or maybe like the the area they're living doesn't have as much um, kind of robust peace education or opportunities like that. I wonder if you have any advice for young people who are kind of interested in the nonprofit sector or peace building world, mm -hmm. but aren't quite sure like how to get their feet into it. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would not be here today if it weren't for mentorship. Itosan, the the atomic bomb survivor who I'm close with, or Steve. Um, who founded this nonprofit with me. Um, I think mentors in the social sector have been so critical to me being where I am. And a lot of them are would be so excited um, if a young person reached out to them and said, I'm interested in learning about the social sector and helping where I can, or whatever social issue you're passionate about, reaching out, um, and doing volunteer work to start, I think is a really excellent uh, idea, just the connections that you make. Um, in terms of people interested in making peace activities their career, I would encourage you to look into social businesses and B Corps. Um, actually, in America, I knew people who graduated out of college and went to work for nonprofits. So, but here in Japan, that is quite rare. It's not often about a viable career path, but social businesses are, especially in Japan, they're now rising. So in other words, um, they have a viable business model. And at the same time, the reason they're in business is in order to create a positive social impact. I think of Patagonia as a really excellent example, but um, Japanese GDP, I think now 3.5% is now generated by social business. So that could be a really interesting opportunity to look into social businesses. But I also think this is maybe my last, another additional comment that, um, you know, most young people won't go into the sec social sector or become activists. And so mm -hmm. even if yeah. you go into a position, for example, right now I'm in consulting or I have some of our young uh youth leaders, they might go into to business or government. Those knowledge sets are critical for our peace movements. I really believe that. And that's something that actually inspired me to take a step out of the social sector. I believe we need people with a diverse range of skills and passions and people who are committed to making the world a better place to be in all sectors so just because 
you aren't doing something that aligns with social impact at the moment or full time does not mean that you cannot make an impact is another thing I want to say. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's where the word you use, peace culture, kind of comes into mm-hmm. play where it's not necessarily like like a list of things we have to do, but more of a culture that we're trying to establish mm-hmm. around the world and make a norm. And like wherever we're at, we can make that choice to build that culture or not. That's really important. So we often talk kind of about the the peace Avengers. So like if we all go into our various sectors, but we keep in touch uh, through our core values and the, the vision of the future that we have, someday when we are um, more powerful, we are adults, uh, more powerful than we are now, having those connections in that network, we might really be able to make a significant change together. So um, yeah, I would, I would say that no matter what sector you go in, there are always possibilities. I love that image of Peace Avengers. That's that's great. I do too. <laughs> yeah, that's so great. Um, so now you're you're kind of you've made a career transition and you're in this government consulting uh, and kind of public policy position and still supporting PCV's work on the side, of course. Uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you made that transition and what you're doing now and how you see your role now connected with peace culture or yeah this kind of uh, making the world better I guess we could say broadly Mm, yes good question so um at PCV we have uh, a motto or a catchphrase and it goes know yourself change the world um and so I think in my work at PCV I've become a professional and quite good at helping young people to identify their values and how they want to live and to lead and Um, how they can contribute in a way that they feel called to. However, when it feels, when it comes to changing the world, I was beginning to feel unbalanced in my knowledge, um, having ever only known grassroots change, bottom-up change, and the social sector. And with everything happening in the world, especially when it comes to climate change, nuclear weapons and everything happening in Ukraine, I'm getting impatient, I guess. Mm, like yeah. education is extremely important. And what PCV is doing in, in the education field is necessary and powerful. And I still believe that 100%. But I also want to understand top-down change. Um, and I want to understand how government and business work. And I want to understand where I can actually make the most swift and strong impact, right? Um, Me, Mary. Uh, Mm. And I wanted to complicate my worldviews and understand the nitty gritty of of policy and hopefully get an understanding of how the nonprofit sector and social sector, especially in Japan, might work together more effectively with business and government to uh, increase the impact of their work. So those were all things that drove me to take one foot out of my work at PCV. So now I, as you said, am working full-time in consulting and government relations consulting. It's a completely new field for me, but it's definitely checking all the boxes. I'm learning so many things and I'm really enjoying it so far. 
So you said that you're doing this job as a full-time job and then also still helping with PCV a little bit on the side. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a theme I've noticed with several of the guests on this podcast is that uh, they're engaged with the work that's really more than a full-time mm -hmm. uh, investment of time and energy. Mm -hmm. And so a question I really like to ask is, how do you stay rooted and sustainable in the work that you're doing? Uh, that's such a good question. I cannot honestly tell you I have figured this out. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, no, I think oh, that's a really good one. And to all of y'all out there listening who are struggling with this, I, I commiserate. Um, so I think, you know, balance is really crucial for especially people who are doing what they love or what they believe is important. It can be so hard to set boundaries. Um, and in my experience, there have, of course, been experiences of burnout, but I also think one phenomenon that I experienced while working at PCV is that everything in my life became PCV. All of my relationships, um, anyone I met, I was trying to pull them into the work. Uh, no activities outside of work. And that's mostly because I was having so much fun and it, it was, you know, is an important life mission. But that also has downsides, right? Um, I, I'm a person who tends to feel a lot of pressure and that my, my value is based on the amount of work that I do. I tend to feel guilty when I take time to rest and all of these just, it can not be good for your mental health at times. And so I um, am actually working with a therapist and executive coach who has helped me a lot to work on balance. Um, and something I'm I don't know, ironically, I guess, learning from my job in consulting where they do not encourage us to work overtime and they've instructed us not to look at emails uh, outside oh, of work. I know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite lovely. Um, it is that rest is as important as work. Mm. <laughs> I'm still yeah. learning to, to uh, you know, this, this idea. But I think especially now that as an organization, as PCV, that we have new people, we actually have new college graduates that are coming to work with us full time. We've realized that we need to change our own working habits and our culture as an organization. Um, so it's definitely a huge challenge that you know I'm working on and um, have found the, the concept of balance to be really critical. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's hard to balance, especially when, like you said, when we're doing work that we love, it can mm -hmm. be hard to to kind of separate and and to find that space for rest. But yeah, um, yeah I hope you're able to definitely, yeah, find some <laughs> some time for that self care and Thank that you. fun. Um, is there anything about your work that I didn't ask that you'd like to share about? Yes. So, well, I kind of already touched on this, but I just one more time want to emphasize um, our app X explore Hiroshima with an X. Um, this app, once again, I would love if everyone listening would give it a try um, and maybe give us uh, a rating or it's, it's free on the Google Play and Apple Store. And this app, um, it actually recently, we won first prize in the social messaging division of the um, Undiscovered Gems oh, really? Grand Prix. Wow. Yeah, this year. And um, so we, for me, I have always been really into video games. I've loved VR and immersive technology. And this was the first time that I really saw that that technology can be harnessed to help people empathize and stand in the shoes of people who are different from them. Um, and so I, you know, um, am really interested and, and 
intrigued in conversations about the metaverse and immersive tech. And there's so many hurdles to be overcome from energy and inequity and things like that. But um, I think that these types of technologies have so much potential um, when it comes to social impact. And so, um, I don't know, that's just a conversation I'm really excited about right now. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so cool. Yeah, I'll definitely put a link to that down in the description. So anybody listening can definitely check it out. Yes, that would be lovely. Well, Mary, it's really been a pleasure getting to hear about the work that you're up to and hear a little bit about your story. Uh, thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Thank you, Austin. It's been a pleasure. So that was Mary Popio. Hopefully you were able to learn something new or perhaps gain a fresh perspective on something old. If you want to find links to some of the stuff we talked about in this episode, be sure to look at the show notes. If you've been following along with the other guests who have come on this podcast, you likely already know that peacebuilding is a broad field with diverse perspectives and approaches. Each guest brings a bit of that perspective with them into these conversations, which I hope makes this podcast a valuable resource for your own peacebuilding practice and study. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, follow on SoundCloud, or subscribe to Peace Momo's YouTube channel. If you're interested in the other work Tepi does, you can check us out at momotepi.org. That's M-O-M-O-T-E-P-I dot org. That's all I have for you today. I'll talk to you in the next episode with another guest sharing their perspective on peace in Northeast Asia.